Hello, hello, and hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode, if not now when. Today, oh my goodness, I am super, super excited. For today's special guest, we have Gavin Gallus on the show with us today. He is the CEO of YGC, a leading enterprise software venture studio based in Austin, Texas, the place to be today. And Gavin also is a serious entrepreneur, experienced CEO, managing many, many commercialization of IP-driven projects within digital transformation, blockchain, and machine learning. I'm going to share one of Gavin's favorite quotes by Paul Grennan. Live in the future, then build what is missing, which I think is such an amazing summary of Gavin's professional life and focus. So with that, everybody, I'm just super, super excited. And thank you so much, Gavin, for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Wen. It's so good to be here on If Not Now, When. Um, I love the entrepreneurial community. Um, it is such a uh, fantastic place, and I'm excited to share some stories with you today and tell you all the things I've done wrong. <laughs> yes, yeah, so why don't we jump in, Gavin? So tell us, how does all the magic begin? So it started growing up. Uh, I am actually a second-generation entrepreneur. Um, I grew up in a family that loved new ideas. My, da my dad would always sneak away and try and read science fiction books um, while driving, while on the toilet, uh, in the backyard. Um, he was a big, big reader, and so was my mom. And so, we, you know, there was a million worlds to explore in books. Um, I was on the swim team since I was a young kid, and the public swim pool was right next door to the public library. So I would sneak into the swim pool, get my swimsuit wet, my hair wet, so my mom thought I swam and sneak over to the library for an hour or two during swim practice and read all the science fiction I could. Um, so my dad was contacted by a friend when I was about 10 years old, and he was starting a, a new company to recycle batteries. These are big, giant batteries that went on submarines and uh, trains, and um, they had developed a process. He was an engineer and developed a process to recycle and recondition these batteries. And there's not a lot of uses for giant, massive batteries back then. Um, and so as a, almost as a joke, they bought a big, old police cruiser, and they electrified it. They put one of these massive batteries, it's about the size of the, the whole backseat of the car, um, inside of a, a, a gas-powered vehicle and converted it to an electric car. Um, and that was a bit of a, you know, a showpiece for the company that they could you know, not just can recondition batteries, but think of novel ways to use it. Use it. And so my dad, um, after that, the the company dissolved. He formed his own venture called E-Motion, and he converted gas-powered cars to electric cars. So I grew up, you know, early teens and all the way through high school, going to trade shows with my dad. Uh, we we raced electric cars. Um, we did a Phoenix 100 race every year. We raced up Pikes Peak in Colorado, up to the top of the mountain. One of the writers from uh, Sports Illustrated was uh, the driver. And uh, so that got us great press coverage and, and a fantastic stock car driver as well. So growing up at these trade shows around early entrepreneurs trying to innovate in solar power and batteries and electric vehicles was a really unique world. And I didn't know it. I just thought that's what parents did. They, 
you know, they had jobs. This is my dad's job. And only now, you know, when, when Tesla was popularized, it, I realized, you know, how cool that was and how innovative it was. And these were not flashy, fun cars. They were big, heavy. Um, the, the car I drove in high school was a Volkswagen Rabbit, which is a very tiny Volkswagen, but it was loaded down with an extra thousand pounds of batteries just to get it to drive around. Wow. Uh, so I never even learned how to pump gas until I was 20 years old um, because I would always plug my car in at night. Um, and so that was a kind of a unique upbringing that I'm just appreciating now as an adult. And it started me on my own entrepreneurial journey. Wow, Gavin, I, first of all, that is so incredible. I usually, when you said, when you share about when you were young, you, you're supposed to go swimming practice, you go to the library. I oftentimes hear other way around. So that is amazing. You see somebody like yourself, you know, just so inspired by the knowledge, by, by reading, which is, you know, of course, made so much sense. And I'm curious, you mentioned about, you know, you, your dad is such an entrepreneur and entrepreneurial in his entire career. How does that shape who you are today? Like, do you always felt because of that, you always knew that is who you are becoming? That's a great question. And I, my response is actually the opposite. I hated being a kid in an entrepreneurial family. And what? it's something as a parent I've, I've tried to watch and manage as well because it was such a roller coaster. And as a kid, you know, imagine being on a roller coaster, um, but not knowing where the seatbelt is or not knowing when it was going to stop. Um, it didn't have any agency as a kid. So we'd have money and then we wouldn't have money. You know, uh, you know, we'd be poor one week and feeling really great the next week. Um, so it created a lot of uncertainty as a kid. Um, and so when I made my decisions around college, um, I got a business degree. Mm -hmm. I went to law school. I did all these things that you do if you want a nice, stable, you know, predictable life. Um, and then one year into being an attorney, I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> like it's, I don't like the work. Everything I do, I can spend 30 years at this law firm and I know exactly how much money I'll make. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't fulfilling. Um, in some way, you know, I craved that roller coaster and the ups and downs. And, and so I took opportunities to become an entrepreneur and I'd love to share some of those uh, today, but it was, there's no path to entrepreneurship. You don't, go to school to be an entrepreneur, you know, you don't, there's no playbook for it. Um, you kind of just have to find your way into it. So let's talk about that, Gavin. First of all, that's fascinating insight. You know, you, you share about going on the trade show with your dad, all that, but yeah, you actually secretly hated it when you were young. And then you go to a complete opposite, 190 degrees, right? Going to be a lower and, you know, go to every step along the journey. And then a year you're like, damn, this is not the life I want. I'm curious at the time, instead of young age, was it hard for you to, you thought that's a path you're picking and this is not the, the direction and now you had to go pivot it. Were you scared? Were you, you know, knowing, knowing what you dab into, were you scared to go after that same path and how were you able to make the right decision at the time? So this is something that you'll never hear from any of these entrepreneurial thought leaders. You know, they, they praise hustle culture and, you know, just burning the bridges and sinking the ships and going off and chasing your dreams. Um, I believe that there is a middle path. Mm -hmm. I, um, I was working as a lawyer at a company and was flying back from a, a work trip and just had the most interesting conversation on the airplane. I met a gentleman who is a fifth generation business owner. His business was just, you know, the whole industry was declining 
and we were talking about new tech. And I told him what I did at my day job. I told him about some of the side projects I had worked on. And he said, could you do that for my industry? Could you transform my industry? You know, could we figure out a way to do that? And it was just the deepest conversation I've had with a stranger. And we ended up being business partners for five years. And so we worked on that idea we had on the airplane uh, for about six, seven months while I had a full-time job, while I had kids at home. Um, but nights and weekends, I'd get on the internet, you know, open a Google Doc and just start working on this new business idea. And, it, you know, it, that was my passion. The day job was my day job and I loved it and I was good at it. But at night, I got to work on the thing I really loved. And in that model, I didn't have to quit my job. I still had health insurance for my kids, um, but I was able to try something else out. And that came at a sacrifice to my love of video games and my love of sleep uh, and all the other things you do in your night hours. But you'd be amazed at what just two hours of focus a day can do if applied cons consistently over several months. You can make a ton of progress um, just on that little side hustle. And so once we got to the point where I realized it wasn't just a project, it was a business. Um, I ended up leaving my full-time job, raising money, and then stepping in and becoming the CEO of, of this new company that we cooked up on an airplane. Um, and I did it without you know, missing a paycheck. I um, was able to walk from one job to the other because I'd incubated that nights and weekends on my own time. Wow. Talking about determination, Gavin, that's incredible. And also in the midst of, you know, raising a family. And was that an easy decision? Once you get everything set up, once you get, you know, you know, decide, okay, this is actually the business. Is it still easy stuff to step into being that CEO and quitting a job? No, I, I heard the other day on an Andreessen Horowitz podcast that the startup CEO job is one of the most punishing jobs you can choose beyond being a lawyer. Beyond, beyond being an investment banker. Um, it is a thankless job. Um, you take all the risk. You definitely have a reward dangled in front of you. But when you look at the total failure rates for startup CEOs, it's a, it's a terrible thing. Um, and so you really have to take care of yourself while you do it. You have to build a network around it because the entrepreneurial effort isn't necessarily that one idea and that one company. Uh, mm -hmm. It's about building this collection of experiences, mental models, friends, networks, people you can trust on, relationships with investors, and then just compound interest on top of that. So some of those ideas you had from your first startup that failed will go directly into startup number two, and they'll make it so much better. Um, and so that adage about you never lose, it's always you learn or, or you win. You win or you learn. Um, that's a really powerful thing to realize that um, – the constraints you have, the mistakes you make, that it isn't about losing, it's about solving a puzzle. And puzzles, you know, require you to fail a couple of times and, and for pieces not to fit before you can finally see the total solution. Gavin, that is so beautiful you just said. You learn or you win, which is amazing. I think a lot of time uh, in life, people are afraid of trying something or do whatever that things that, you know, bring their heart joy because we're afraid of failure, we're afraid of, what if I lose? But you're right. We cannot lose. Either we 
win or we learn. I think that's such an amazing model. And I can see that, could, you know, maybe that's why you are one of the successful, serious entrepreneurs from one manager to another and continue to, you know, on this path and truly go after what you really want. And that's so incredible. So let's talk about the startup life. You talk about CEO is one of the toughest jobs anyone can ever wish for. So at the moment, you were switching from a law practice to a startup CEO. Was that everything you anticipate? What surprised you? What is the hardest thing you have to do? So being a lawyer helped me not be afraid of contracts, not be fit, afraid of negotiating deals, not being afraid of doing a ton of reading and a ton of research. Um, but it meant that I knew nothing about technology. I knew nothing about coding. I knew nothing about how products were built. Uh, I knew nothing about customer research uh, and customer development. And so there was a lot to learn. Um, and there, there's some incredible resources out there. I've set the webpage of Hacker News as my homepage for the last 10 years. Um, and it's been one of the best communities and resources for me to learn and figure things out and understand where the industry's at and what people are thinking about and working on. Mm -hmm. The other biggest thing that helped me move from a non-traditional you know, entrepreneurial background into tech and, and new, new venture building is going to hackathons. And I'm going to put a plug in for that. And you'll see my face light up when I talk about hackathons. Um, hackathons are uh, a, a short duration, typically a weekend um, event where a, a company on behalf of its employees or a group out in the community gets a bunch, bunch of people together in a room and gives them some sort of challenge or prize and, and sets the room loose to network with each other, form teams, create solutions, and wrap up the hackathon by presenting their, their ideas. Mm -hmm. And in that short amount of time, there is a ton of failure. There's a massive amount of failure. And that word, you need to take all the pain out of that and, and just take it as learning and winning. Um, there's a ton of learning that happens. Mm -hmm. um, you, the best hackathons have you run out of the building, call your friends, try to cold contact people from the, pro, you know, the industry you're trying to work in and really interface with the customer as much as you can, even in a short period of time. Rapidly come up with new ideas and try to find the quickest ways to model those, whether it's in some sort of no-code tool or a quick website or even just a pitch deck. Um, and, and you just do battle. You, you beat up these ideas, you test your assumptions. Um, at some point in every hackathon, someone on the team's ego breaks down and you got to build it back up. Um, and what comes out of all of that is that one, an incredible connection to the people you work with on your team, um, a, an incredible sense of, of optimism around the future as you see everyone's ideas come together and you just see incredible ideas and novel solutions that you wouldn't have come up with um, but they emerge from, from this, you know, amazing group of people who are giving up their free time to go build the future. Mm -hmm. Um, so some of the best friendships I've had have come out of hackathons. Some of the best employees I've hired or co-founders that I've built companies with, I've met at, at hackathons and I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer. I went to law school cause I'm afraid of math. Um, so I, I would encourage even non-technical people to try these hackathons out and do not just one, but commit to do a couple of them uh, to see who you meet, to see what you learn and to actively dive in and try things out. Um, I met another lawyer on the elevator up to a hackathon that I was hosting at Capital Factory here in Austin several years ago. 
And he thought he was just coming to learn about entrepreneurship. And I said, no, it's much more hands-on than that. You're not coming to a seminar or a workshop. It's a real roll up your sleeves, dig in. You need to get on stage in a couple hours and pitch your idea. And we worked on a pitch idea on the elevator uh, right up to the Capital Factory. And he ended up pitching that idea, winning the hackathon as an attorney, founding a company, which I ended up joining. And it's been a successful company that through its technology has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for nonprofits. Wow. What are the odds, Gavin? That is magical. That is so cool. So the, it doesn't happen to everybody, but it's, it's an incredible testament to the, the power of just showing up for something, mm-hmm. um, trying things out, getting out of your comfort zone, um, because it, it does seem awkward as a non-coder to mm-hmm. go to a hackathon, which, you know, that the, the origin of the word hacking is, you know, trying to get unusual performance out of machines. And even if you're non-technical, there's a lot of things to do, like mm-hmm. creating tasks lists, fetching coffee, running the whiteboard, building the pitch deck, calling customers. There's a lot of things to do, doing research, a lot of things that non-technical people can do beyond designing and, and, and software development. Um, so I encourage everybody to, to try that out as an experience in a micro startup mm-hmm. and getting exposed to a tiny amount of failure and just feeling all those feelings of, oh, you know, I just did something wrong and I have to throw it away. We hate throwing things away. We always like to hoard our ideas and we hold them precious. One of the things that I see entrepreneurs often do early on, especially in their first time, is hold ideas very precious. Um, they don't want to talk too much about their startup. They might say they're in stealth mode. Um, they want you to sign an NDA before you talk to them. Um, and they worry obsessively that someone else is going to figure out what they want to do and beat them to it. And that is the worst way to start a company. It puts way more stress on you. It actually inhibits your ability to learn and it it ruins the ability to pull smart people into your ideas and to expand those ideas and grow them. Um, And I'm speaking as an intellectual property attorney tasked with protecting secrets and, and, you know, company innovations, get those ideas out there, go talk to customers. (laughs) The, for uh, the early entrepreneurs you work with, the quickest source of truth that you can receive is a conversation where you ask somebody to pay for your product or services. And in that moment, you will know whether your friends are just telling you they like you and they like your ideas, whether your mom just thinks you're a wonderful son or daughter, um, or whether your idea actually has merit. The moment I just talked to an entrepreneur today, he's built this really cool tool that Shopify is trying to buy from him. And it's just you know, it, it clones the functions of all these other companies and puts them in a single interface. And he, it's just magic. He's, he has created actual technology magic. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, license the technology from him. And uh, he's like, I don't even know how to price it yet. I can't give this to you yet. I don't even know what I want for it. Um, and that to me is, is just so incredible that he just went, down a rabbit hole and built and built and built and built a cool thing that the moment he talks to me, a potential customer, I'm not challenging his ideas. I'm not fighting him. I'm just trying to figure out how to pay him money. 
that's a great problem to have. That's <laughs> a great problem to have. And that's when you know you have product market fit. When the conversations start talking about, you know, how I can buy your product, how we can partner more strongly, how I can invest in you. Um, those will come organically once you finally figured out what customers really want. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And Gabba, you know, speaking of Hackathon and all those incredible innovations you have been part of for the past couple of years, you seem like very passionate about this technology magic or innovation, whatever you want to call it. Why? Why are you so passionate about it? What does that mean for you? So imagine you had to go on a long journey and you were offered a couple options. You could cross the United States by foot, by bicycle, or by car, what would you choose? By airplane. By airplane, exactly. And you would think beyond the airplane, how could I get there even faster? Could I teleport? Uh, could, 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 I, could they beam me? You know, could I take a high-speed you know, supersonic jet? Um, could, I, could I ride there by jetpack? the human mind goes to additional ways. Who hasn't stuck it, been stuck in traffic and dreamed for a flying car or you know, a, a drone to come pick you up or a tunnel underneath the traffic to, to get to your destination faster? Our minds go that way. We, humans are amazing that we're endless innovators uh, because we have needs and wants and we, we understand that the current solutions aren't there. Um, and so just the bicycle is a mechanical marvel. It, it cre- you know, using the exact same energy that you would use to walk, you go farther with it. And we live in this world where people are afraid of artificial intelligence and they're afraid of technology in general. We have to realize that these are cars and bicycles and planes and they can take us so much farther and faster. Mm-hmm. And we can still be the pilot and we can still be the driver. Um, but learning how to use these tools and adopt them I am so much more efficient in getting my work done because of the way my computer works, because of the way my phone works. And there are counterfactors there. There are things built to distract you on your phone. Um, and you have to realize what you're trying to get out of your technology. So whether you're a company or an entrepreneur or just a human, you have to understand what you want your technology to do and then be really selective around the things that you allow into your technology. Um, to create performance and speed um, and the goals that you want out of it. So to me, I just, again, like sneaking over to the library as a kid, reading science fiction and science fiction to me is, is almost like a hackathon. It's a, it's prototyping ideas and trying them out in a game environment, you know, in somebody's, you know, mental model of a, a new world or a new universe and just testing out those ideas. And when they commit them to paper, that they then say, hey, this could work better. Or, hey, this is dy- dystopian. This actually makes things worse. This is a scary society to live in. Or, you know, this creates zombies. Um, but once you get those words on paper, you're able to actually test those ideas. And when people love sci-fi, like the Dune movies coming out, and they're making a found at, at Asimov's Foundation series for Apple TV, um, those those books have a following and a love because they've clicked into some sort of feeling we have around the way we want the future to be or the way that we want the world to be. Um, so to me, I think of sci-fi authors as early prototypers um, <laughs> because you know they're designing something that we can we can test and we can feel out. And then sometimes that vision comes true. I was really privileged a couple of years ago to be at a dinner 
and uh, meet this guy named Ernie. And I was talking to Ernie and we were talking about his baby and he had brought his brother to the event and they'd, they, they had customized their cars. So they were matching. And I just thought that was adorable. Um, and, and I learned more about what Ernie does and Ernie is Ernest Klein, and he wrote this book called Ready Player One. And Steven Spielberg made a movie out of it. And in that world, uh, Ready Player One, you transact in digital currencies, you you live in a metaverse, um, you know, games become the, the dominant reality for most people. And we're seeing that world play out. And a lot of the themes from his books are, are actually very relevant right now in the world of NFTs and digital art and virtual reality. And that's been accelerated by COVID. And, and so just his ideas playing around on paper, you know, several years ago are now becoming the technical roadmap for companies as big as Facebook. Wow, that is so incredible. And, and I'm curious, speaking of future, Gavin, what are the future that you want to see or you want to create? So I talked about that a bit in terms of the bicycle. I, I love the world where we are made better by the machines we interact with and, and they provide us more intelligence, more connection with the people and the causes that we love, um, more peace of mind, more financial stability. Um, my first experience on the internet, I'm 40 years old. And so I, I remember being in the computer lab in high school uh, reading on Yahoo News about Gary Kasparov, you know, this chess genius, grandmaster, playing a rematch against IBM supercomputer in chess and losing, losing to a computer. And so here I am on a computer reading about a man, you know, in a John Henry battle, man versus machine, and the brightest mind in the world loses to a, a team of not expert chess players, but expert software developers. And so he, that, that loss hurt. It hurts to lose to something as dumb as a machine. Um, but he, over time has embraced this theory called, he calls it centaurs. A centaur is a mythical beast with powerful horse's legs and a human body on top. So you can do all the things as a human, but you can run as fast as a horse. And so he uses that metaphor for our, our relationship with machines. And now if you look at the current grandmaster, uh, Magnus Carlsen, he's a kid who grew up digitally native, you know, playing on uh, playing computer chess his whole life. And he's actually used the computer in, to great effect to train faster, to try out new ideas, to iterate on scenarios, to model. And so he's actually not just the bet best grandmaster today but he's better than a lot of the grandmasters in the past because of this relationship with computer training so he's taken computers and actually augmented his own intelligence by by learning faster by iterating faster by being able to try scenarios that you would never see in normal gameplay and so he has become as gary kasparov predicted a centaur he can run faster than a human can because of his relationship with with technology um, and so that's the world that, that I would like to see is, is a world where technology becomes less scary, less dystopian, less mm -hmm. intrusive, and becomes something that helps it mm -hmm. elevate humans, elevate our lives, provide us financial stability, provide us, you know, 
augmented intelligence, augmented context, augmented relationships, and experiences we can't do in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, there's places we can go in virtual reality that we can't go mm-hmm. um, in in the real world. Um, there is, you know, trust and applications we can build on blockchain that we can't build in normal normal systems, um, where we can build for incredible amounts of trust and, and programmatic um, mm-hmm. decisions. And so there's a lot of things that these emerging tech um, platforms and 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 uh, sectors are promising that if they do come true, it becomes a better net effect for everyone. And then it's our job to shore up, you know, all the defaults or all the the the, the faults of of new technology, um, and to be good custodians of of, of what we build. Gavin, you are such an innovator and also dreamer at heart. I love the vision you're building. I definitely can see how your passion, your past driving towards that future, which is, you know, just so incredible. And I want to bring that back to, uh, to your journey, Gavin. Uh, earlier, you shared about how you could have jumped from being the lawyer to stepping into this startup world. I'm curious, you know, you are a serious entrepreneur. You will start many, many journeys, adventures in the past, you know, 20 plus years. I'm curious, um, can you share in your entrepreneur journey, what is one maybe mistake or biggest failure that you have in your time? Because I love what you said earlier about you either learn or you win. And I imagine, do you always have that? Is there any experiences shape you that lens and help you who you are today? Yeah, I mean... In this journey, there's a lot of failure, but I think you know when you when you climb to the top of a sport or you master a skill, you you forget a lot of the pain it took to get there. You know those long days at the gym or the the how your fingers hurt. You know the first six days you tried to play a, an instrument, um, you forget a lot of the pain and and you just remember the successes. And so you know in the companies I've started, in the products I've built. There's been hundreds of failures. There's been thousands of people that have ignored what I was trying to do or told me no. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I failed to raise money in a ton of ventures and I've been really successful in others. Um, but specifically, you know, th- there is this language around pivoting and I think it's a bit overused, but let, let me talk a bit about that estate planning uh, company we were, we were, we were building. Mm-hmm. So the, the initial hackathon pitch was called free will, you know, as a play on philosophy. Um, but the idea was, you know, in a, in a hackathon weekend, we were able to take a, an estate plan, a will that you, you would fill out to assign your, your money and your assets to the person that, you know, comes behind you when you die, your, your wife, your, your kids, your, mm-hmm your uh your favorite charity whatever and and um and so we built it in a weekend and then we're like great it's called free will we're committed to giving away for free do i just put it online and put ads on it we didn't feel good about that um we worked with a software vendor here in town that promotes software and we gave it as a big uh giveaway um and we got twenty thousand people in in one day to to download and and uh, sign up and create a will. And uh, we're like, okay, this is pretty powerful. And we had a line in there that let them designate who they wanted to leave um, their money to. And most people click the default buttons, you know, wife, girlfriend, uh, uh, 
domestic partner, parent, et cetera. And then we just had this kind of box and we looked at the box results um, uh, in general and we were just going through it and it was a ton of nonprofits. It was Austin Pets Alive and uh, the American Cancer Society. And we thought about that. We thought, well, you know, doing a will is hard. You know, it's gross. You have to think about death and your family and money and all the things that people try to stay away from. Um, so even if we made this free, you know, we, we can't necessarily like build a business around it because you as the user, you're not really the customer of the end product. You know, you die and it doesn't really matter after you die. Um, so who benefits? So those family members absolutely benefit. Um, and then we, we looked at all of those other, you know, miscellaneous, um, things and we realized that we were in the wrong business. We were going to fail. Um, and we've worked, you know, nights and weekends on this for over a year. You know, all of our significant others were kind of questioning whether we actually had a company or we were just getting together to drink. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and we are like, what about that miscellaneous box? You know, what could we do there? And we realized that the big beneficiary of what we could do, if we could get estate plans out to millions of people and they left money to charities, then we would be massively funding charities in a way that no one had ever done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, these in the, in the charitable giving world, these are called planned gifts um, where people designate money to their university or their church um, or their charity Um, or some sort of civic organization. And they actually make up a massive amount of funding for these nonprofits, but they're they're incredibly unpredictable. They're hard to get. And universities and other large um, organizations have figured it out. They have hard charging, very charming, essentially salespeople that work with their alumni groups and their donor base to go out and wine and dine them and get them excited about leaving a big legacy gift and then they put their name up on a stadium or name a library after them. Um, but if you think of that in the sales world, those are enterprise sales. It's long time to close, high risk, very expensive to do. Mm-hmm. And what if we could bring that same SaaS mentality into nonprofits? Mm-hmm. And so we pivoted to giving docs. We gave up on giving away free wills. There's actually a competitor in our space now called free will. Um, and, uh, and we decided to go directly to nonprofits and say, hey, if you have donors, if you have volunteers, if you have staff, if you have community relationships, mm-hmm. just give them a will for free from Giving Docs. And in that, we will fill out your information so that if they want to leave a gift to you, it's easy peasy. It's automatic. They click a box, they put a number in it or a percentage of their estate in it, and then you receive that gift when they die. And that has been massively successful. We work with the ACLU. We work with major colleges now. Um, we've generated over $250 million in future gifts for nonprofits by realizing that we were doing our business completely wrong and that we were going to fail and we were wasting our time. And is that easy conclusion to come to? I mean, right now, the pivoting has been such an incredible success. But at that moment, was it hard to realize? And- how did you get yeah. that? It meant we had to throw away a lot of thought. We had to throw away a lot of code. You know, we felt like we'd wasted time. Um, when you talk about psychology and mental models, this is called the sunk cost fallacy. So <laughs> you you put a lot of effort into something and you keep putting more effort into it because you're trying to recoup 
and recover the, the work you put into it. And that's one of those things when I talk about embracing failure and getting excited about it is learning to have a, a, a less of a connection to past work, realizing that you're going to be an entrepreneur your whole life. Even though you put three months into understanding how consumers, you know, will, will want to do this, you'll probably come back to that at some future point. So just bookmark that stuff, put it in a folder, save it on your computer and forget about it. Walk away and then realign and, and test out this new idea. So we went to a, a tiny local church and we said, hey, can we, we signed up to be notaries, which means you got a little stamp and we, we could, um, we had a printer there. So we sat in the lobby of a church and we told people what we did and asked them if they wanted to leave a gift to the church and they could do it right there on the laptop and sign in, have their own password, have their own account. And then we would print out their will for them, stamp it, and notarize it. Wow. And that Sunday, um, there was $3 million in gifts left to it from a tiny congregation to the church uh, as our little test run. Um, and that's when we realized we had something that might have product market fit. It might have a little bit of magic there. Mm -hmm. um, and now at this point, we've written, we're based out of Texas. We write more wills, I believe, than the entire bar association does every year. Um, because there's no friction. Mm -hmm. It's legal in all 50 states. Um, we let users control it, modify it, update it anytime. There's no cost to them. Mm -hmm. And that lets them really align their gift to whoever they designate. And we've seen cases where donors will leave up to 10 gifts um, and split you know, their, their estate to local causes, national causes, international causes, um, you know, things they're really passionate about. And what a powerful thing is if you have a life goal and you've worked your whole life, you know, on saving pets or on, you know, building hospitals to be able to continue to do that work after you die through that donation, it's a pretty powerful thing. And it actually, when you look at the behavioral science and the research behind it, it makes people more successful and more fulfilled in their life, knowing that that work can continue on after they die. You know, Gavin, one thing I really love about you is you obviously have such a heart to innovation, to technology, but I also love about you leveraging that, um, that strength, that passion, you know, in the cause that you're really passionate about. You truly, I can see you just really want to make this world a better place. By, te by leveraging technology, the innovation truly just empower human beings have a better and more complete life, which is just so inspiring. So thank you, Gavin, for what you do and all the things that you create. So now we talk about failure, we have to talk about success, right? Now I'm curious about, you know, Gavin, today you have accomplished a lot of incredible things in your professional career life. I wonder, one, what's your definition of success? Secondly, with that definition, are you successful? Like that. Um, those, are those are deep questions. To me, success is um, having work that is a slightly harder than you could do today um, and, and being engaged by it. Um, I think there is, a, I am happiest when I have a healthy obsession with the, the latest thing I'm working on. Um, and so a lot of my adventures into entrepreneurship is just understanding the way my brain works, that I love to learn. I love to try new things. I'm okay being wrong. Um, I like to work with smart people. 
that are equally ambitious. Um, and, and I like to challenge things and understand why, why things are there. There's this old story about Chester, Chesterton's fence, and it, it talks about the city council or, 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 or planning committee that had a big fence in the middle of their town. And they didn't know why it was there. It was right up at the edge of, edge of the forest. And it was called Chesterton's Fence. And, and uh, they said it was ugly and an eyesore and didn't belong in their town. And they decided to just rip it down. So they ripped down Chesterton's Fence. And then it was a heavy rainstorm. You know, they only had rain like that every 10 years. Mm-hmm. A big pack of wild boars came in, uh, wild pigs from the forest that were driven out of the forest because of the rain. And they trampled all the plants and knocked things over and charged through the whole city and caused a lot of damage. And apparently that fence had been built 10 years ago to, to keep the, the pigs out. Oh. And so they, they didn't know why they removed it um, or why it was there and, and they decided to remove it. So sometimes entrepreneurship is understanding Chesterton's fence and understanding why is a bank the way a bank is or why is an airline the way an airline is. And then once you can understand why that fence is up, then you can innovate. Um, but I, I would say, you know, to be successful, it really takes this curiosity and this seeking for understanding. And once you can find, you know, why things work the way they work today, um, then you can innovate. You know what can be replaced, what's being done just because we always do it that way, um, and, and what has room for improvement uh, because there's new technology to bring to things every single month. Um, there's, there's new ways to do things. And th- that comes at a cost too. Um, am, am I successful? I don't know. Um, I'm still excited about what I do. Um, I, I work with great people. Um, I have been able to support a lifestyle that matched what I would have done as an attorney. But I have much more flexibility and much more fun doing it. Um, I remember the day I decided I didn't want to be an attorney I was still interning at a law firm and I had listened to a radio show that said, if you fake a smile, um, that, that action of holding the smile will actually try to make you happier. Um, and I found myself trying to make myself happy there, um, quite often. And I realized that I shouldn't have to fake things to, to be happy. Um, and so I wake up every morning excited to do what I do. I'm not saying that any of it is easy. I'm not saying that this is you know, a fun journey, but it's absolutely engaging. It's, it's absolutely fascinating um, to play with things like blockchain, play with things like, you know, taking an entire industry and rebuilding it or just understanding why, you know, uh, a, a truck technician fixes trucks in that way and not the other way. Um, so to me, it's, it's just a, a, a journey of exploration um, I've run, I've run out of books to read, so I get to, I get to read life now. Wow. Gavin, what a powerful answer. And thank you so much for sharing your insight and wisdom. That's so beautiful. And I'm curious, you know, Gavin, if you go back to maybe your 25 years old self or 30 years old self, what would you tell him? What is one thing that you wish he know? Just have more fun. I think I, I tried to take myself too seriously in my twenties. Um, I think, I think I focused on a lot of the wrong things in my 30s. Um, now that I'm just entering my 40s, um, I think there is a component of play 
Um, games are a very powerful thing. I've always loved games. And if you can find a bit of a game in your life, um, whether it's just incentivizing yourself to go to the gym or encouraging yourself to, to read more books um, or finding ways to, you know, be more interesting in conversations, um, try to find an element in play of play in what you do and build that into your habits. I highly recommend this book called Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Um, it came out several years ago. Um, but it not only tell, teaches you about habits, but it actually, in the writing of the book, reinforces the habits. Um, and that it, it never calls that out directly, but it's very cleverly written. And I think as adults, our job is to understand the way we work as humans, the way we think, the way we motivate ourselves, the way we um, interact with others, and to build habits on top of that to improve those, those aspects of our life. I love that book. So thank you so much for uh, recommending. My last question for you is, you know, Gavin, today you work with so many entrepreneurs across all different fields, different industry. I'm curious, what is, you know, piece of advice you will give to him or her who maybe just started a venture, maybe just about to quit that lawyer job, maybe just about to start this, you know, exciting and uncertain journey. What would you say to him or her? I'd go back to an earlier comment, and, and that's about your job is to seek the truth. Um, in co college and school, in corporate environments, we do a lot of things to protect ourselves. We never want to get a bad grade. We never want to get a bad performance review. Um, we, we try to avoid pain as much as possible. And the difference in entrepreneurship is to realize that the pain is growth and pain is okay. Um, and you will live past the pain. As awkward as those initial customer conversations will be, you'll get through it. And people are way more forgiving just for trying. Um, I, I speak a little bit of Spanish and I've gone to a lot of different countries. And when I try out my Spanish, um, even if I'm not doing great, people admire the attempt. And I think that's the biggest thing as an entrepreneur is people will admire your attempt. So just try and you'll get so much better, so much faster by just attempting and trying. I've coached at Div Inc., at galvanize at capital factory um i was an entrepreneur in residence at ut for several years and entrepreneurs all come from the same flavor they're they're just they try to be brave they don't have to be good but they try to be brave um, and so that would be my biggest advice is go out start talking to people that could potentially work with you buy your services buy your product and and just listen ask great questions and then come back to them showing that you've actually understood that conversation and that you have a path forward there that you could help work with them on. And that's really what you're trying to do is just create that better world by listening to people, understanding them, um, and, and being, you know, patient in your ability to innovate and create new things. Um, if we all did that just a little bit in our current jobs and in our life, um, you know, we would find, that we're doing some things ourselves just because that's all the way we've always done it. Wow, Gavin. And oh my goodness, I really want to thank you for, you know, the incredible answer, incredible insight today. I really felt you are such a leader. Lead by examples, listen to your audience and truly, you know, bring the innovation, bring technology to make this world a better place. You know, it's just so obvious that you are such a truly just a kind-hearted businessman, entrepreneur, just really wanted to drive and make an impact, which is, I'm just so honored, so grateful today to have you on the show, you know, uh, share the conversation. I'm just, oh my God, I am so inspired. 